Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's back. It's Buckeye Talk. It's Doug Maurice with Bill Landis and Ari Wasserman from Cleveland.com. Thank you for joining us once again for our 138th episode of Buckeye Talk. This might be episode 40. It's close to 40. We're approaching 40. Uh, it does not seem like 40, does it, to you guys? I don't know. It's a smooth 40. Yeah. Ohio State, Nebraska this week. Um, this team is interesting right now. I think this Ohio State team is very interesting right now. I think they're hard to read uh, in a lot of ways. Um they have some interesting players. Um, they have some superstars who maybe aren't doing what you expect. They have some young guys who are playing pretty well. They have some guys who I think like flashed and popped early in the year that are coming back to earth a little bit. Uh, it's a very interesting time, I think, to talk about Ohio State football. So that's what we're going to do. We have a couple questions we'll get to uh, before we finish here. But what I was interested in when we talked with Urban Meyer and the players on Monday is – you could tell that they have an idea of what people think of them right now. Um, Raquan McMillan, the middle linebacker, you could tell he has a read on what people think of him as a draft prospect right now. Um, JT Barrett is aware of what people think of Ohio State maybe not living up to expectations even as they're winning. Uh, all of this is interesting to me because I think we wonder sometimes, like, do they – they care. Do they care what is written about them? Do they care what fans think? You know, and unlike Trevor Bauer of the Indians, who gets in Twitter fights um, with fans on a regular basis, the Ohio State football players are much more mature than Trevor Bauer, who is 25 years old and makes $1.7 million a year. Um, so they don't get in Twitter fights with fans, but they know what's up. So what we want to talk about a little bit this week, and we hope you find this interesting, is the media and the fans, can they have any effect on a team? Can they have an effect on how players play because they could have an effect on how players think? Ari, this was a thing last year with this team. The players talked a lot about, you know, we come in after a game and all the questions about why didn't you win by more? We never felt like the wins were enough. Um, in your long career as a sports journalist, do you think in your time covering Ohio State, do the players care what fans and reporters think? And can it have any effect on the team and how it performs? I think that they care. I think that human beings care about what they do and their craft, um, regardless of what it is. Um, we're sports writers, and we have a unique job 
um, because we are also constantly criticized and in the sight of fans and people. And constantly praised for how great we are, too. All the time. All I hear every day is how awesome I am and how smart I am. And That's how the awesome recording of yourself that you play in your apartment. But, like, I don't care when people tell me that I'm terrible, but, like, if a million people think I suck, that wears on you. Yeah. So I don't think that um, it would be smart to say that the players don't care. And the, this week, as we're hearing about those things from JT Barrett, and I wasn't standing with Raekwon when he said whatever he said about his draft stock, but they brought it up voluntarily, yeah. which means what? Either they're aware, which means they read, and if they brought it up, it means they're thinking about it. So um, I don't necessarily believe that people say, hey, I don't read anything. I think to a certain extent. Even Urban Meyer reads certain things that are brought to him. I don't think he goes onto his computer like Mike Stoops did in Arizona and read everything every Sunday. Uh, <laughs> but I do think that there is a certain feeling, and I think that they might think it's unfair. Um, I don't know if it has much effect on how they play, um, but I do know for a fact that people care what's being written and said about them, especially because with these kids – What's being written and said about them a lot of times has an impact on how much money they're going to make in a few years or soon. Yeah, I they definitely are aware. Of, like Raquel McMillan sort of went on not not a rant, but like made it clear that he knows what's going on. Like really based off a question that I asked, and I just said like, "How are you playing?" It was the most general, vague question you could possibly ask someone because I knew, and I guess you can read into that sort of like, you ask someone how you think they're playing and they take it as you think they're not playing well, so that's what they give you as their answer, but I don't think I asked it that way, and he said, well, according to everyone else, I'm not playing very well. And like, that was completely unprovoked and not what I asked for at all, and like, he went there. He, it's kind of what you meant, but it's not how you asked it. Because you wanted to see, you were asking him because you knew that was out there. It's yes. not necessarily us yes. saying he's not playing well. But I didn't preface it with saying, Raekwon, people think you're not playing well, Correct. what do you think? You left it wide open, which is the most interesting way to do it, because then he could take it any direction. Right. And you got a read on him yes. with the direction. And this is exactly what happened last week when JT Barrett was talking. Somebody asked him about the weenie arm comment that he made a year ago, and he said, maybe I was on Twitter too much. Which is a direct admission to, hey, I read what you're saying about my arm on Twitter. Um, and then it was an impact. There had a big enough impact on his psyche to come in a year ago and go on a five-minute rant about having a weenie arm. I was going to ask him about the weenie arm one year later because that was like this week, a year ago, and I didn't go there. <laughs> I wanted to see what he would have done because I'm curious to think, like, was that – did he like that he did that? Like, was that – like, did he get something off his chest with that and, like, he liked it or did he regret was doing it? Therapy. it? Yeah, it was – I would have been interested. I, I should have done it and I, and I didn't. I sort of wanted to give him a break. But what – so when you – when Raekwon Bill responded that way to you, did you feel like that told you something about what Raekwon McMillan is thinking right now? Yeah, I, I, it's so weird because I it's like the most general question you can ask like a athlete is like, did the pressure get to you or how do you handle the pressure? And it's so cliche that it's bothersome. Um, but these are teenagers. Like Raekwon McMillan, I don't know how old Raekwon McMillan is. What's he, like 21 years old or 20 years old? Um, he is aware that people think he's not playing well. And I think like... It puts pressure on a kid to play better, and maybe, I don't know if he's pressing a lot or, or whatever, but he's upset about it, even though he didn't. Someone said, like, are you angry? And he said, no, I'm not angry. I just noticed it. Well, like, you wouldn't have bought it up if you weren't angry. Um, so I think maybe there's a level to it, like, how, how can you, a person who doesn't play football, possibly question the way I play when I've been doing it my whole life? And also, like, am I good enough? Like, I think there's two two different sides to that. 
Um, I think I took it more as Raekwon, like, I'm good, man. I know I'm playing well. I don't know what you guys are seeing, but I think I'm playing well. And I'm like I'm I'm holding myself up to my own standard. I think I'm I think I'm handling it pretty well. Raekwon McMillan um, is re- I mean statistically is just not popping like the way you thought uh, he might. He does lead the team in tackles with 51 in eight games, but that is you know he's averaging about six and a half a game. That's quite a bit under mm-hmm. uh, what he did last year. Um, he he probably just hasn't flashed. And and I may write a story on this, and one of us may or already may have, but, you know, I th- he gave, like, an interesting explanation. We ended up talking to him a lot, and he was, like, sort of talking us through, like, what he does on a play and, and all the things that he's calling out and identifying and getting guys lined up and why, you know, he's doing a lot even if he's not making a tackle, even if he's not getting a sack or making a pick or whatever. So, um, I and I felt like partly – it's just sort of the way the questions went, but like he was willing to go there. I felt like yeah. a little bit because he was happy to explain yeah. his job because he's happy to explain, listen, if you think I'm not playing well, here's the list of things I do on every single play, by the way, um, you try to go out there and do it. And again, yeah. he wasn't at all upset or angry or defensive. He was very sort of matter of fact and he was, he did not come across as uptight about it, but it just the, what he was saying, it was like he kind of wanted to make a point, and he made it very clear that he knows. There's one draft guy that we respect in particular who had tweeted, Raekwon's not playing like a first-round pick. And I don't know if that – I'm imagining that tweet got to Raekwon one way or the other. Oh, sure. So um, do you guys think in general – and again, this applies to last year and this year because JT Barrett is the one who said this – Kind of in a funny way to everybody on Monday, but he was saying, you know, remember last year when we'd come in after a win and all the questions were about why he didn't play better and, you know, winning was never good enough. And do you guys remember that? Like he sort of said that Mm -hmm. to us. And it does feel like um, they felt that, I think, after the Indiana game, there was a feel of that a little bit. After this Northwestern game, there was a feel of that a little bit. Do you guys think we're too negative? And I'm going to say we as a media pack – covering Ohio State, do you think post-game on a Saturday and when we come back in on Monday and talk to Urban Meyer and the players, looking ahead but also wrapping up the week before, do you think the tone of those days after they win is a, for lack of a better word, negative tone? Or do you think it's, you know, if you were somewhere else, it could be much more, much harsher? Here's the thing that I think a lot these guys, for the most part, are highly rated guys during the recruiting process. They're the best high school players in the country, and they come together as a group in recruiting classes together as one of the top five best recruiting classes in the country and go to one of the top five best programs in the country. And from the beginning, this is the path that they've chosen. And at a place like Ohio State and at a place like Alabama and at a place like uh, you know wherever else you want to say, Beating Northwestern 24-20 to 20 isn't a positive thing in general. I don't know if you would agree with that, but I think that simply winning at a place like Ohio State is not the bar. The bar is looking good when you win, when you play teams that are talent. The talent is inferior to yourself. So when we are asking the questions that we ask, um, it's not so much, it's not our job to say, hey, congratulations, you won. It's like you always say, Doug, and this Doug's instilled this into me since I was a young journalist. 
<laughs> what does this game tell you about the next game and the games coming? And last year when we were negative, and I did the air quotes, um, it's because something was clearly off, even though they were still winning, because they're supposed to win the games that they were winning last year. And then when they played the first game they could have lost, they lost. So it's part of our job to not only write, hey, here are the results, here's what happened. It's to spring forward. And we have a very good pulse on this team. We watch this team every week. We interview this team. We're around this team. And we know when something's not quite there. And when we were negative after the Indiana game about certain things, what happened? And I think that there's a certain time and place to get answers of, hey, what's up, even in wins, because at Ohio State, beating Northwestern 24-20 to is not a positive occurrence, so it's not a positive environment. And I don't know if the word negative Critical. is the right word. Critical, Critical. is a better word. Um, because we don't have a slant. We don't care either way what happens. We just want to answer the questions that the fans have. And I don't think fans watched the Northwestern game and left and said, hey, that was great. They won. But, but Bill, do you think the overall tone of the Ohio State media is critical? Like, do you think – like, that's sort of what I'm – so what they are reacting to, do you think that's there? Do you think it is a critical tone that's maybe more critical than – Again, school X where they're seven and one. Do you do you honestly think that? Again, maybe maybe we don't have a comparison we we haven't covered. Yeah. Well you covered a little bit of Penn State. Yeah. I, I, mean, covered, I covered Penn State and Temple. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> is this what you saw last year, what you saw this year? Is it honestly, do you think it is critical? No no. Uh, well, I don't think it's I don't think it's too critical. No. Um and I think in general it's hard to be critical when they've lost when they've lost five games or six games. In five years, fifty-six and five. Fifty-six and five in five years. How dare you not know that? Right it's now. really, <laughs> it's really difficult to be critical in general um, of a team that wins ninety percent of the time. Fifty-seven and five. My error. Oh, sorry. Yeah. How dare you not know the record? They're fifty-seven and five. It's very difficult to be critical. Uh, I don't think that the tone of the way that Ohio State has covered is overly critical whatsoever. I think when when criticism is deserving, it comes. Um, and maybe because it happens so infrequently that when it does happen, it makes people uncomfortable. Um, Urban Meyer certainly has seemed a little on edge. Maybe he's a little better this week on Monday when we talked to him, but the last two weeks, um, he was on edge and I think a little preoccupied with what he had to do to get his team turned around. Um, compared to like where I've been before, um, obviously the programs I covered at Penn State and Temple were not nearly as successful as Ohio State's been over the last five years. Um, but I think it's about the same. I think if you look across the country and we're able to compare it, I think it would be similar. When you're good, it's easier. When you lose, questions get harder. Um, it just so happens that Ohio State doesn't lose very often. So when those hard questions come, I think they don't like it so much. So the question is, Doug, do you think that it's critical? That's not the way. I, do you think that being critical is warranted after close wins over teams that are clearly better than? Well, it's one of those things. It's It really, truly has reached the point where a close win for Ohio State really is a loss in the way that you assess it because of course it's not really a loss. And like all the people who are listening to this, who are coaches can say how stupid it is. it's about winning the game. And I don't, I don't think it's fair for us or anybody for fans or media or anyone to ever take the winning for granted because a win is a win and 57 and five is absolutely remarkable and, uh, I did a piece last week where I had tweets from people where Urban Meyer is 56-5, and five, but we did that before the Northwestern game. And so I think that is 
to me, it's almost like that is in parentheses before everything that is said. That is the understood part. Ohio State is 57 and 5 in the last five years. We know that. You as a fan have to know that. You must allow that to seep into your consciousness when you are calling for Joe Burrow to be the quarterback. You know, like you can't go off the deep end. But I don't think you want to walk in there 24 after a 24-20 game and just say, well, a win's a win. So I, I you know, I think because other, because that's what you would do every time. That means 57 times in the past five years, every post game would have been the same. You guys won. How's it feel to win? Congratulations on the win. What was it like to win? Why did, you, what did you do to win? Talk about the winning. And then for five times you'd say, oh, you lost. Like what? You know, you can't just do that. That's not really what it's just about. So um, I can't even remember what your question was, Ari. But I mean, is I, it warranted? I do think that it is. It is warranted in that sense of when you are so high, when you are up in the clouds, and you are fifty-seven and five. Um, if you ever really want to talk about issues, because most a lot of teams, when you aren't super talented, problems equal losses. Right? Yeah. So after a loss, you talk about the problems. When you are winning, it doesn't mean you don't have problems. But if you only talk about the win, you never talk about the problems. So if you want to talk about problems, which is okay, in what you would say in Ari, in the long view, what's going to happen down the line? What does it mean for the Michigan game? What does it mean for the future, for the playoff? You have to talk about the problems. You have to talk about the problems in the context of winning. Because they don't lose. You can't you can't talk about them in, in the context of losing. And to be fair, they win so much here, they get a little grumpy when they lose. Yeah. They don't want to talk when they lose. Like Urban Meyer after the Penn State game sort of said, Well, I have to look at film and then came in on Monday and sort of wanted to say, Well, that's behind us. And it's like, well, wait, like let's talk about so and on Saturday he said we'll talk about it on Monday. So and, it was a and complete then on Mon- yeah. And then he did talk about it yeah. on Monday, but he didn't really want to. So they don't want to dwell. They don't want to dwell on the losses. They don't really want you to sort of rub their face in the losses. And not that we're doing that, but the best time then to talk about problems is after a win. Right. So the end result ends up being you won, but you won, but you won, but. You won, but. but yeah. And after 57 times, I can understand why they get a little frustrated with it, but I don't think there's any other way it could be. It also hasn't been 57 times. Like, we don't come in after they beat Oklahoma. There weren't a lot of negativity. No one, no one, nobody there were no yeah. critiques after they beat Oklahoma. It was like, yeah. holy crap, look how good you are. Tell us how good you are. And a lot of those wins, I wouldn't say, what, 15 of those wins were like 77-0 wins over Bowling Greenish type wins, too? Yeah, we're not, we were not we budding, budding Bowling after Green. Bowling Green in the non-conference. Yeah. You're budding after the 2013 win over Northern, Northern Illinois. Illinois. Yeah. And, you know, 24-20 to 20 over Northwestern. I'm not saying that Northwestern isn't a good team. Maybe they're in the top half of the Big Ten and they're doing some things right. But... It is a butt atmosphere when you beat Northwestern at home 24 to 20. Let me ask this question. Three choices. Pinning you guys down. Mm. I want to go back to last last year's team. And then my answer is I pass. (laughs) I'm going to go back to last year's team because, again, the players have started comparing the feeling after this game to last year's feeling. Ohio State lost to Michigan State and fell short of the playoff last year because, A... 
the budding of winds and it, the winds not being good enough wore them down and had some effect on their attitude and their approach to the game. B, there were some maybe individual things that were happening. I'm not saying we know about them, but you've heard some players talk about it, that off a national championship with all these guys headed to the draft, maybe some guys weren't as focused as they could have been. Or C, they got bad play calling against Michigan State. They were fine. They call a better game against Michigan State. They win. They're on track, and nobody's talking about any of this. Ooh, I know my answer. Go ahead, Ari. Go. B. Uh, you think it's without B question. all the way? Because with B was the individualism, individualism. Yeah. winning a championship. I think that that is a hundred percent what happened. Um, because I, I, I think, and I think that's human nature too. I don't even know if you can fault somebody if they come into a program and um, you win a national championship for your team. I think that once you've accomplished that major goal. And you're forced and you're to play still another year. Forced to play another year. I think that it's probably human nature to think, "Hey, I'm six months away from being a draft pick and to being a millionaire." And a lot of people, do you really think? And I don't want to individual say anything about any individual because we don't know. But do you think that draft pick A was coming to the facility every day, thinking like, "How can we?" all work together the best way to make sure we're functioning at the highest level right now? Or do you think it's possible that maybe half of his time was being spent thinking about agents and draft positioning and not getting injured and doing all the things right? Because there's no question about it. Ohio State was the most talented team in college football last year. Or may, I don't know. I'm not an Alabama expert, but Alabama and Ohio State. They had 12 draft picks. They had so many draft picks. And to lose at home against a team that was very good team. I don't want to take anything, but they didn't have their quarterback. It was at home. I don't think it was just an, the play calling was off in one game and everything was fine. I think that there was a lot of individual thinking um, going on there. And I think rightfully so because these kids give a lot to the program and they won a championship and they already got to the highest level that you can get in the accomplishments. And I think there was a lot of people probably thinking forward. Yeah, I think I agree with most of that. I would say if I can maybe permit it to combine B and C, I think I would combine those What's two. What's C things. again? It's hard for me. C to was remember. the play calling. Okay, play calling in the one game against Michigan State. Yeah, lost by I don't. I don't yeah. think it was a. I don't think it was the the pressure getting to them, the the criticisms of winning and not winning the right way. Um, I but that that team was too talented. I think for that to, for that to be a factor. Um, I think they were coasting a little bit because of some of the stuff I already talked about. Yeah. I think Ohio State, and it still happens, I think this season is of the mindset that we're more talented. We don't have to be crazy. We'll just execute our stuff, very basic stuff, and we're going to come out with a win. It doesn't matter what the win looks like. Um, more often than not, that is going to lead to a win. It didn't happen on that night because Michigan State was a pretty talented that team. Was a, last year was a very cocky team. Yeah. And, again, when you win a championship and you have as much talent as you do, I guess that's part of the game. But I don't know if they probably approached every week during the season, if I had to guess based on the personalities that were on it, that they were approaching it with a all-in, let's beat opponent X mentality every Monday when they walked in that facility. Yeah. Yeah, I completely disagree with that. Uh, I think it's all C. I think it's all C. I think it was basically all coaching last year. I think they screwed up the quarterback thing. I think Urban made the quarterback thing much more complicated than it should have been. I think they ended up putting in a quarterback that didn't fit their system and they didn't know how to call plays to fit Cardale Jones. 
and that messed up the offense. The whole year, the defense was a championship-level defense. So I don't think there were signs on the defense that they weren't living up to what they could be. And I think they laid an egg at the time. They could not lay an egg against Michigan State. All the stuff leading up to it, I think, was messing around with the quarterbacks and the play-calling structure, which was proven to be inadequate because they completely switched it after the Michigan State game, and then it got better uh, in the last two weeks. So that's kind of a sidetrack. I will – but I I didn't think that they were – I don't know. I just don't think that was it. I do want to just mention one thing. When Dontre Wilson met with the media a few weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, he did say once we got the ship, there was a lot of individualism. Yes. And I don't want to pretend like that doesn't exist. Urban and said I agree, that too. And I agree with you. I'm not saying that they – I mean, I'm the first person. And even while it was happening, we were saying, what are they doing with the quarterbacks? Yeah. And Ezekiel didn't touch the ball enough. Did you hear that he was displeased about not touching the ball enough in the yeah. Michigan State game? And I think that that's a debate whether or not he actually did. But the, there was never a balance of – when it was working perfectly at the end of 2014 and things were going great, before they were like when they were on their way to winning a national title, I don't remember ever there being any "what are they doing?" questions, and I felt like the entire year last year was filled with only that. And I don't know what the the difference is. Obviously, the quarterbacks were different, Cardell Jones in the system, um, and and stuff like that. But I don't want to. I, I still firmly believe that B was part of it too. I think that is like the uh, everybody looks back and thinks like now is better. Nobody ever admits it in the moment. Nobody would have admitted in the moment last year that it was happening. And now after the fact, they're going to look back and say, well, they were individuals. Well, I mean, they were. They had 10 guys drafted in the first three rounds. But like, I don't think, for instance, and we don't want to name names, I don't think Joey Bosa, his level of play was affected by the fact that he was going to be the number no, three pick in the draft. I mean, he yeah. was double teamed a lot. I don't think Darren Lee's play was affected. I don't think... Vaughn Bell's play was affected. Michael Thomas didn't get the ball as much as he should have. Never said a word. I don't think Michael Thomas's play was affected. I don't think Taylor Decker's play was affected. You know, like I think I could run down a list. I don't think Nick Vanette, who also didn't get the ball as much as he should have, I don't think his play was affected. I don't think um, who else. Why don't we just not go down this road until there's <laughs> Eli Apple's left. play was affected, you know? So I think they got caught in a couple things. But so I guess the, but the reason that was like an interesting tangent, I hope it was interesting. But the reason I'm asking is so what B, so if B was or was not a thing, B would not exist now, yeah. correct? Yes. We agree with we that. We can eliminate B. So B is off the table. So if there's any, so, um, and what I wanted to get to was do you think A could possibly be a thing? A, not living up to expectations, the butts after wins. So you don't think that is something that really was an issue last year, and you don't think it's an issue this year that has or will affect the performance of the players. But let's do your let's do your your favorite thing and like make up a fake scenario. Yeah, if we make up a fake scenario of questions are negative, JT comes in every Monday for our weekly meeting with the media, and he's pounded all the time. Um, with what's wrong with the passing game, where's your deep threat, why aren't you guys moving it as much, and all the questions that he has to face the last few weeks. Right. Make up a fake world where JT Barrett gets up and he's impacted by this how. Like if if A were a thing. I think he would be impacted by 
sort of like a wearing down of like he's sitting at home running through Twitter, reading stories, thinking, man, I work my butt off for everybody and all they do is criticize me. I'm sick of this. Why do I even bother with this? Why would I go in and lift extra in the morning? Why am I going to study extra film when all I do is get criticized anyway? It's not worth it. Like it's like a psychological thing that could come out in sort of a maybe lesser um, commitment because the heck with it or be um, all right, fine, let's do it. And then he throws three picks. Now that has clearly not happened, right. right? He's not forcing things based on any of this. And I certainly do not think I just made up the scenario of the first thing that's completely made up. Yeah. I don't think JT yeah. Barrett would do that. And the reason or why is doing that I, at all. The reason why I don't think that is, is because there's too much, darn money on the line for a lot of these guys. And the extra lift sessions and the extra film sessions and playing well on Saturday um, has such a huge impact on these guys' future. And I think that every single person who comes and plays for this team has a dream of what? To go on and get paid. And um, I don't know if question from Ari Wasserman or Doug Maurice or Bill Landis, which are phenomenal questions, by the way. <laughs> Whatever really cause well all this is is fodder for them to say, look, we told you so after they fix it, if they fix it. And I, I think that that is convenient. I don't know if we're a motivational factor or something that we write could stop somebody from working hard. The thing about it too is, um, and this might sound like us and us being media, like passing the buck a little bit, but we don't talk to the guys who are struggling. Like, we talked to JT Barrett, and if you want to critique JT Barrett, he's been up and down a little bit this season. But largely, we talked to the guys who were playing pretty well. And we don't talk to the assistant coaches who aren't coaching well, and we don't talk to the players who aren't playing well. So if there's things being planted in the heads of those guys that are affecting their play, I don't think it's coming from us. But one thing we do know about a lot of guys on this team is they like to search Twitter for their own name. And when you say something good about them, they retweet it. But they're seeing all the crap, too, because they got to scroll through a bunch because of Because after games, I don't know if you guys, I, mean, I know Bill, but Doug, Four hours after a game, Jalen Holmes will retweet a tweet that you might have had about him. Right. From the first quarter of great closing speed by Jalen Holmes to get that loss of three. Right. But, so, yeah. But so Jalen Holmes is not retweeting. Jalen Holmes should never play right. football. I got to get that guy's point. out there. I didn't there. think about that because that. So, but just so people understand what that means, they don't always follow everything. They read it. But they they type in their own names and read it. And when you type in Jalen Holmes into Twitter after a football game, it's not just media. It's There's a lot of tweets with – and that, Jalen Holmes is just an example. Right. Um, but, and not um, really – he's playing really well. He's so he playing really well, so it's a good example. But, um, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. Because you do get like a string of favorites mm-hmm. from random football players that don't even follow you of like Malik Hooker's – Malik Hooker did it, you know? And, they, you know – but Imagine I'm, I'm, being I mean, Isaiah Prince after one of them has right. been criticized. That's what, but yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm, Maybe you guys can tell me if I'm off on that. Like, I think that stuff like that more so than media asking tough questions mm-hmm. can really mess with a kid's head. If a kid, like people, if 10 people on Twitter tell a kid he's worthless, then what's that kid going to think? I think that can have a maybe a more tangible effect on the way someone plays than we think it could. And like you said, they don't bring those guys out. And I think that's fair. Like, I don't know that we ever – That's. I mean, let's just be – no one's hunting it. Isaiah Prince had a bad game against Penn State. Yeah. The right tackle. He's a true sophomore. Put in a tough spot. He's, a, I think, a very gifted and skilled offensive lineman who had a bad game. And again, um, 
one time Taylor Decker had a bad game against Khalil Mack. Yeah, and Prince played better against Northwestern. So, so it happens. But like you said, Isaiah Prince is not put out in front of us to answer 10 questions of why did you miss 14 blocks in pass protection. Yeah. Um, but he is doing that on Twitter. So, I mean, that is a hard thing, but I think that is something, and I know for a fact, I mean, having conversations with other guys, when you, I think the hardest thing to be a young starter, when you are a young starter, you're so excited that you're starting. What a great honor. And boy, did you work hard for it. Um, but when you haven't been around that long and you're out there every play and then people are saying you're not doing your job, that does wear on guys for a fact. I know that for a fact. And that can be hard to get past. And the only thing those guys can do is talk to the guys who are older, who have been around and been through it. And we haven't talked to Isaiah Prince, but if he had a hard time getting past having a bad game, all he can do is talk to Billy Price and Pat Alfline, and they can tell him what it was like when they went through it, because most of these guys go through the same thing. Even when you're at Ohio State, if you're playing when you're young, if you're not playing when you're young and you sit for three years, and then by the time you play, you're old and you can handle it, great. But if you're talented enough to play a lot when you're young, you are going to have bad games, mm -hmm. and you have to figure out how to deal with it. So... I think that's a real thing when guys talk about it, that Billy Price and Pat Elfline and Isaiah Prince's other friends on this team had to make sure that he got his head right after a game like Penn State. But like you said, Bill, he played, played better against Northwestern, right? Yeah, they played much better. And, and like there was a thing about uh, like Brandon Bowen was like a third tight end they used, but they used him a couple times, and it was all running plays, I think. like Isaiah Prince was one-on-one -on -one with a guy who uh, was like third in the nation in sacks and held up pretty well, and the offensive line in general played better. Um, only allowed one sack and I think like five or – Six pressures after allowing like twenty pressures the week before. All right, do we want to do a fake ad? Do we have anything to do a fake ad for here on the Buckeye Talk podcast? You can listen to us on Cleveland.com/slash OSU. You can find us there every Wednesday morning in the post that we put up. Uh, also, find us on iTunes at Buckeye Talk Podcast. I had a fake ad the other day and I forgot what it was. It's just like the fake ad every week is let's look around Ari's apartment, <laughs> yeah, and see the things that he's using. Both let's speakers. not do. Let's just like forget me. What is like a thing that made something convenient in your life at your house today? Oh, you know what? I discovered a uh, new brand of ice cream. Ooh, that's called I. I think it's it's H A L O. I don't know if it's Halo or Halo. It's called Halo. It's Top. like healthy, right? Two hundred and ninety calories in a pint of ice cream. You get a Ben and Jerry's pint. I think twelve hundred calories. Chocolate ice cream, full pint, 290 calories total, and it tastes spot on. It's all made of natural stuff. It is delicious. It's crazy expensive, but it is delicious, and you can eat What's ice cream crazy without being... Uh, let's, let's, like, let's cut the crap here. Yeah. That's real high quality. You feel like a fat person eating it? Yes. I was eating it last night thinking to myself, I and maybe I'm tricking myself, but it tastes like... Because I've had like um, coconut milk ice cream that's also lower in calories and lower in sugar, but it tastes different. This tastes legit. It tastes like I got a pint of Hagen Dazs chocolate ice cream. And Seriously, I put it down. And how much is it? It's like six dollars a pint. It's not cheap, but you're eating ice cream and you're not gaining ten thousand pounds. Is there candy in it? No, because well, Ben and Jerry's has candy in it. Right. I just had straight chocolate. Um, I don't know if My you favorite. can get like a half baked healthy version. I don't think you can put cookie dough and brownies in anything and have a. So I like uh, cake batter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, cookie dough, but. What anyway, can we do? shout out to Halo Top. Yeah, you're delicious, and the don't first me male to ever. Mention that. Feel free to uh, send Bill ice cream. Okay, we're going to take some questions we always ask every week. Hopefully, uh, you folks are following us on Twitter, at Douglas Maurice, at Bill Landis 25 at Ari Wasserman. Um, we put out the call every week. 
got a couple here, I think. Bill, what do you got? Yeah, I got um, probably maybe two that we can answer. Um, let's see. This is confusing. The handle is at Joe Duder, but the name is Joe Booter, so I don't know if it's a typo <laughs> or what. Uh, he has if uh, the Jet Sweep Pop Pass or whatever it's called, is it dead? I don't dead. think I don't think we've seen it once this year. Uh, it's basically dead. Uh, they've maybe done it like four times this year. They've handed it off maybe one other time. Uh, yeah, it's dead, and I don't know why. Because and you wrote this before the season, Doug, that this was going to be the resurgent season of the H back with Dontre Wilson and Curtis Samuel, and that the jet sweep was going to be part of that, and it's not. And maybe it's a resurgent season of the H back in the sense that Curtis Samuel's playing well, but. It's not what we thought it would look like, and they're not running that play, which is like a staple H-back play, I think. So I don't know why it's gone, but it's gone. And so they throw swing passes to Curtis Samuel. Yeah, like every other snap. I don't – What? why is a swing pass better than a jet sweep? I don't know. I would argue that it's not because the jet sweep gives you more of the field to use. And the jet sweep, you're getting the ball and you're heading – in the direction you want to head. I feel like a lot of times on those swing passes to Curtis Samuel, he's sort of catching it like sort of backpedaling toward the sideline with his back toward the sideline facing JT Barrett straight on. Then he catches that and has to turn himself and then get his momentum going as opposed to taking that little pop pass on the jet sweep on the fly, in motion, and then getting either out into space or just getting to the corner and turning up field. I think, I mean, I think Curtis Samuel would shred people on the jet sweep. And I and I don't, I mean, I, in the end, I think this was it. I think this is it. I think that was a Tom Herman play. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. The, I mean, Urban Meyer ran it like with Percy Harvin. But, but since Tom Herman left, they don't run it that way. They didn't run it at all last year. They ran it like less than once a game. Well, they didn't run it at all when Cardell Jones was quarterback and then didn't bring it back much when JT was playing. So they just they just don't use that. And that's that's what I think is so good about the run game. And again, that would qualify, that would be counted as a pass, but really is a run. Of when you get that guy who's not in the backfield, but you're handing the ball to him. Mm-hmm. And then, then you can have that tailback come out as a lead blocker. I think the thing they're missing the most, and I don't know why they don't do it more is Mike Weber as the lead blocker for Curtis Samuel. They did it once against Penn State, and it was a 73-yard touchdown. And they just they just aren't doing it. And I don't have a reason for why it is. And I, I feel like we're almost at the end of being able to ask Curtis Samuel questions because, you know, he did have 14 touches last game, and that's the number they want to be at. Um, but I feel like, A, they don't come in the right order. They don't come in the right mix, and they're not all the right type of touches for what I think would be maximum usage of Curtis Samuel, and one of those would be on the jet sweep. That kind of feeds into this next question that we had um, from Fez the Buckeye. Fez. He, uh, by the way, Fez, I let you down. You were good picking games with me, and I've been terrible the last few weeks. Um, does Urban Meyer and the coaching staff, uh, do they over-strategize, for example, scripting of plays and limiting number of touches? And I think that's a good question in a sense. Maybe spin it a little bit. Like Urban Meyer has said, he doesn't want to be the guy anymore who's forcing the ball to people. And I think we'd all agree that maybe he needs to force the ball a little more to Curtis Samuel. So do we think in that sense that he's over-strategizing and thinking too much about who gets the ball when rather than, you know what, just give it to your best player and see what happens? 
I don't know. I felt like it looked like the first drive against Northwestern was scripted, and I sort of tried to ask people about that. And Pal Offline was sort of saying, like, well, you know, there's things we know worked well in practice, and so we want to come out and do them. So I, I don't know that it's – that first drive against Northwestern looked good, right? Yeah. yeah. And he that said, was the first time they really scored the whole year on an opening drive. The first touchdown right? they scored on the opening drive. Um, Urban Meyer said last week before the Northwestern game that he would ideally like to script the first 12 plays. It hasn't happened much because they've been backed up a lot if you look at the starting field position. But they were backed up. They were on the six-yard six line, and they still came out and looked pretty good. I don't understand, and I'm not a football coach, and I don't know X's and O's, why scripting plays is an advantage. Like, because, like, I just don't. Like, I think I guess it's a start like, fast. It's just a start fast to know what you're going to do out of the gate. Um, but I just always wondered, like, what if something different happens than what is ideal in the script? But and I, I know they veer off. off. They, they yeah. veer off of it. I'm not saying they don't. I just have always wondered that. Um, but I thought that like it seemed like they took all of our questions personally from Penn State, and then like like you guys were right. Here's what you guys wanted, and here's what it is. So yes, Doug, the entire point of this podcast does the media impact Ohio State. <laughs> I feel like the media called the first drive of the Northwestern yeah. game. But they got it to Curtis Samuel. <laughs> they got it to Curtis Samuel. Yeah. It was different. There was a reverse to, to Paris Campbell on that drive. There was a hitch to Noah Brown. It was a very nice collection of diverse plays to different people, and their best player touched it. A couple times. Yeah. A couple times. All right. That's all I have for questions. I have a I question, have but I don't know if it's possible that we can answer it, but I'm fascinated by it, so I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. okay. This one is from Ahmed Yosef. Oh, I got he's uh, one, I have one from him, too. I also have one from him. <laughs> all right, <laughs> Ahmed. Ahmed. What up? Appreciate it, man. Our, and we might have the same one. Okay. But... Are we now seeing at Ohio State the Urban Meyer offense at Florida after Tim Tebow left, but because the SEC is harder than the Big Ten, the losses just aren't there? I am not an expert on post-Tebow Florida. I know they weren't good. I know they weren't good. (laughs) But I guess the reason why I wanted to ask this is because do we feel like Ohio – I think it's another way of saying – does the offense kind of go into a shell a little bit when you lose as much talent as Ohio State did? I think that's kind of what he's getting at. And I think Doug would argue against that because he thinks JT's like Tim Tebow. So yeah, um, I just wanted uh, to ask it because I yeah. thought it was an interesting question, and it's hard for us to answer because we aren't experts at Florida. But right. just maybe another form of that question might just be then, did they lose too much and is their offense suffering because of it? Here's, here's the thing I'll say. And I think maybe this is what's different about Urban Meyer at Ohio State than Urban Meyer at Florida. When he had an offense with Tim Tebow is a very specific kind of offense, mm-hmm. right? It's your um, and he he had Tim Tebow in 2006. He won a national title with Chris Leak at quarterback and Tim Tebow as the alternate quarterback. But seven, eight, nine was Tebow, 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 mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that was then the brunt. I mean, that's three of his six years is is Tebow, Tebow, Tebow. And that's a very unique thing where your quarterback is also your running back who is a battering ram, who isn't like a fleet, dipsy-doo, Braxton Miller kind of speedy, shifty runner. He's just a battering ram. So that's a very unique thing. Urban Meyer at Ohio State has won many different ways. The offense that he ran with Braxton Miller, a quarterback, the offense they ran for three games with Cardale Jones, a quarterback, and the offense they run with JT Barrett is not the same offense. They've gone from Carlos Hyde, to Ezekiel Elliott, to now Mike Weber and, and Curtis Samuel. He has won with different types of players. So I don't think it's fair or correct 
to make a comparison that would imply that Urban Meyer can only win a certain kind of way with a certain kind of player. I think maybe maybe you could have implied that at Florida. What are you going to do when Tebow's gone? But he's done it here where what are you going to do when this guy's – they're going to win. They're going to win and they're going to move the ball and it's going to look a little different. But I think we know for sure he wants a quarterback who can run it. Cardale last year with what they weren't able to do with him proved that. But I think this offense has adapted pretty well to the different kinds of players they have. Yeah, I think, and like you said, we're not Florida experts, but I would imagine that they did not have this collection of receiver talent that we're seeing here. Like, I think he's, he changes what he has, and I think he's done a good job of it. All right, I have a question. From Luke Hutchinson, Luke, who is at Hutchinson underscore 84. Does Urban know how to fix the offense? Why is Urban being conservative, and does he plan to utilize the deep pass more? Um, I think this is, okay, I'm going to make you guys answer this. Like, is there, Urban Meyer is very honest with us and very forthright. Um, is there anything that he is not saying about this offense because it's just he doesn't want to say it? That is that is holding this offense back. And again, Bill, you made the point. You rewatched Northwestern and thought it, it really wasn't a bad offensive performance at all. But there are some shortcomings here with certain kinds of passes for sure. Yes. We're questioning the play calling. The question, does Urban know how to fix the offense? Urban knows what's up. I mean, there's <laughs> yeah. there is zero doubt that Urban Meyer, he knows what works, what doesn't work, who can do this, who can't do that. Is it possible that they're just not telling us something that there's a route these guys can't run, a throw JT can't make, a kind of thing they can't protect? They don't have the receivers who can do certain kinds of things. Is that out there that they are just having to patch it together a little bit with this offense because of the personnel and they don't want to exactly spell that out? Yeah, I think that's possible. And this is something, this will be a sort of a rehash of a story I wrote at the beginning of the season, but I asked it last year too of Urban Meyer. Is, uh, is the fact that your receiver room is largely filled with guys who weren't originally receivers and are on different sort of um, different parts of a transition from something else to receiver, is that impacting your passing game? And he said no last year, and I'm sure if I asked him again this year, he would say the same thing, but I don't think that's true. Um, I think if Noah Brown is your best receiver, Noah Brown was a running back two years ago. And I'm not saying Noah Brown's not good, but Noah Brown is also not Michael Thomas. And there's not a Michael Thomas in that receiver room. If there is, it's Austin Mack or it's Ben Victor, and they're clearly not comfortable playing either one of those guys uh, who are both true freshmen. I don't think Urban Meyer would ever come out and say that our collection of skill and talent at receiver is not quite what it needs to be, but I think it's possible that that's the case. Um, They have a lot of really fast guys, a lot of great athletes, a lot of guys who um, are good probably if you hit them short and hit them in stride and get the ball in their hands and they can make guys miss because they're that gifted athletically. But in terms of spacing and route running, and understanding how to beat his own defense and understanding what you're supposed to do technique-wise when a guy's playing you man-to-man, I think some of that stuff is lacking, partly because what you've written, Doug, is receiver coaching has not been very good, I don't think, and also because these guys are not pure receivers. I think it's a good answer. Um, from GNilly97, Nathan, who's, uh, I think it's his Eric Davis. His thing is Eric Davis on Twitter. Nathan and I, we talk a lot on Twitter. He asks good questions. <laughs> Is Ohio State a young team with lots of lots of room for improvement, or a team with major flaws in talent, coaching, and scheme? Um, mm-hmm. If 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 your choice is A or B, and obviously with everything, it's kind of in the middle. Is your answer A or B? A is young team with room for improvement. B is 
team with major flaws in talent coaching scheme, A or B? I think A. I don't. Are there major flaws? Major is like a heavy word. Majors, I have a hard time a ever saying word. that Ohio State is lacking in talent because they have more talent than every other team they play, basically. Um, I think I would say that, like you said, it's kind of a combination of both. I think it is young talent, and the coaching has been a little off, as Doug elegantly wrote last week. Yeah, i definitely say A. I th- I'd say it's a hard lean towards A with points about B that are worth bringing up and valid to bring up. And I think, again, yeah. I, I, am, I continue to – my two main things, and it's really – the play calling is the play calling. There are still some things that I think could be better in how they use guys, um, particularly in that Penn State game. Better against Northwestern, I still think could be better. I just think they love to say developed here. I think the development in the receiver room and the development in the quarterback room of JT Barrett and offensive line, and offensive line I think there are valid things to ask there, for sure. And that's and again, I, uh, I don't want. I don't think it's fair to put this on. I don't think it's fair to put this on the young players, right? It's a young team, so I think it's unfair to put this on the young players because they are young. I think it's completely fair to put it on the coaches. So I think any question, it's like, yeah, your guys are young. I get it. Go make your money. Like, I don't think there's there's no room to be to think that, oh, you're being too hard on the guys who are getting paid. You know, I mean, yeah. um, because some of the things that are happening with some of the young guys playing, I think, are because – some older guys who are here didn't Wait. develop to the point, and that's on the coaches. A was which option again? A I'm is sorry. young talent young with new improvement, and okay. B is major flaws. So it's more A, right? It's well, more the coaching a, one was with B too. Right? Yeah, but yeah. it's I, so I'm saying it's more A, which is young talent with room to improve. But there are parts of B that apply. Which right. Is, yeah. There are things you can question about the coach. I agree. All right, I got another one from Ahmed, who was just going nuts on Twitter today. But we love it. I think this is a good question. I've written about this, so I'll let you guys answer it. One of Urban Meyer's biggest criticisms at Florida was that he couldn't replace assistants after they left for head coaching jobs. I see that here. And he's asking, are we going to see a similar downturn? Um, Urban Meyer talked about that a lot when he got here. He lost guys like Dan Mullen and Charlie Strong and guys that he really trusted. And he ended up with some guys who he... He tried to take too much on himself as the head coach because he didn't know those guys and just have as much natural natural trust in those guys. And the result was sort of the end of his tenure at Florida. Um, Do you guys have any concerns about the the coaches they've lost and the coaches they've replaced them with? Well, who are their biggest – obviously Tom Herman. two biggest ones that you think of. They lost Stan Drayton and they replaced him with – Tony, Tony Alford, Alford and, and I think lost. it's impossible to critique him because they had Elliott as a running back, and like I could coach the running backs, and he would be. Good. I mean, the ones that everybody wants to critique and talk about. Let's be real about it. Tom Herman was replaced with Tim Beck, which I think and we Ed can Warner also, combined, which yeah. I think everybody would universally say that that was a downgrade. And they lost Mike Rabel and replaced him with Larry Johnson, and I think that's a wash, probably. Yes, and they're, and both, they're both good. They lost Ash and replaced him with Shiano, which, which I would say probably is probably a wash, a wash too. Maybe all. I don't know. Chris, Chris Ash had a pretty, pretty tangible good. impact on the way this defense plays. The defense is certainly not – I don't think it's worse from a secondary standpoint, which is where Ash really put a stamp on it. So maybe that's a watch too. But You know, yeah. I mean, if they, if they kept the scheme in the way that Ash – I mean, Ash brought a scheme, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so when you bring a scheme, they, they've kept the scheme. So I feel like it was easier to feel his foot yeah. fingerprint because it Urban changed. Meyer has now adapted that as his So that's his scheme, scheme now. So – 
Chris Ash deserves the credit for instilling this for installing the scheme, but Chiano. I mean, the the secondary was supposed to be a major, major problem for this team, and I still think that there's a lot of room for improvement, but there's been a lot of guys who have come in and, and played well. So, yeah, they might have three first-round draft picks. You know, I think in a year from now, it's possible that we're talking about some pretty good players. So, uh, But the biggest the quarterback, one is the quarterback. Quarterback's the coach. Beck, and I think you can say, maybe, is it too early and too strong now to say that he whiffed? Because I want to say that he whiffed. Listen, and it's not... You know the, the the play calling thing is one thing. It's just it's just the development in the room. I think like the proof is in the pudding. If J T Barrett says that on fourth down and the two minute drill, and this is exactly what you saw on the third down throw to Noah Brown late in the Northwestern game when he zinged it in there for a first down, mm-hmm. J T Barrett talks about like when he has to throw it, right, Bill, and when he yeah. like, sort of isn't thinking about it, then he rips it in there. And other times he's more cautious. Maybe hesitant is pejorative. That's not fair. More cautious. cautious. Yeah. I think that's on your quarterback's coach to talk you through how you should be able to view things, have confidence in yourself, make some of these throws. It's so that's interesting. That's on the room to It's me. very interesting to me that everything they do on the defensive side of the ball is ultra aggressive. And like that's their mantra. And their quarterback, who again is led by the quarterback's coach, is hesitant to be aggressive all the time. He's aggressive when he has no other choice to be. Um, but I think that the offense could like see a pretty significant bump if JT Barrett was willing to sort of rifle it in there, like you said. And I think the reason he doesn't do that is because he's coached not to. And if he had 12 picks right now, we'd be criticizing him for having 12 picks. What's he have, four? He has four, yeah. So let's praise him for having only four picks. I think he has... Uh, 17 touchdowns and four picks this that year. Right. Which one was like on like his third pass of the season? Is that right? I mean, he threw the first score of the season for Ohio State was a pick six by Bowling Green, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, yeah. Opening drive. Opening drive, yeah. So he's improved from there. So 17 <laughs> touchdowns, um, four interceptions, 63.9 completion rate, um, 210 yards per game. So, you know, I, I don't know. Ohio State thinks I'm biased against Tim Beck. I just don't think he's – I think it's a step down, and I think it's had an absolutely tangible effect on the play of the team. And I think um, they might have won a national championship last year with a different quarterback's coach who mm-hmm. was put in a very difficult situation with the most complicated quarterback situation in modern college football history, and they made it – even more complicated than it had to be. So, um, blame the media. It's our fault. <laughs> no, it's not. We're not saying anybody says that. We're just trying to have a discussion this week about um, how all this factors in. Because these, in the end, these are young men who are still finding their way in the world, um, figuring out life, figuring out how to be a football player, figuring out how to deal with pressure. Uh, we sort of get to watch them grow through all this and you can really see it happen. It's kind of interesting sometimes when you when you watch guys for a couple of years and you think about, you know, what uh what Pat Elfline was in 2013 and what he is now or what what JT Barrett was when he was thrown in as a redshirt freshman quarterback and what he is now. So um that's our Buckeye Talk podcast. You can follow us all week at Ohio State uh, for Ohio State coverage at Cleveland.com slash OSU. Again, on Twitter, we're at Ari Wasserman, at Bill Landis 25, and at Doug LaMaurice. 
get Buckeye Talk on iTunes. Go ahead and subscribe. and just It just pops right on your phone, right? It's like magic. Yeah, it's great. You can update and everything. And Bill actually posted on Tuesday night. This, the story with the podcast doesn't go up till Wednesday morning, but you usually process it Tuesday night? Yeah, it's usually up on iTunes like in the evening on Tuesday, like around 8 o'clock. So if you want to get a jump on your friends when you're hanging mm-hmm. around at the bar and saying, you know, man, I already listened to Buckeye Talk this week. And they'll, your friends will be like, man, what'd they say? And they'll be like, yeah, they talked about the media the whole time this week. I don't know what the hell they were doing. Um, you can do that if you subscribe. So thanks for listening. For Bill Landis, for Ari Wasserman, I'm Doug Lee Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk.